Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about David Lynch. And we have a special guest. Uh, it's uh, my good friend, going back to when we were both editors of the Varsity newspaper together at U of T. He's also uh, written for Jacobin Magazine, and he's a grad student. Uh, his name is Alex Ross. Hey, everyone. Uh, glad to be here. And the reason that he's on this podcast is that when we started, he said, if you're going to do a David Lynch episode, please bring me on. And we're doing one! Yeah. And, you know, uh, we're, we're kind of like the Make-A-Wish uh, <laughs> fetish. Oh, my God, Alex, are you Well, well you know, I, I thought, no, actually, I thought it was... bad news, Alex. I, I thought the it, prognosis <laughs> is negative. Because <laughs> I actually thought I was brought on because I'm one of your few Patreon subscribers. That's so, true. So as, as a uh, backer reward, uh, being brought on to talk about David Lynch, one of my all-time favorite directors. Oh man, we should throw that out to like Patreon subscribers. You that could, like, you might be invited. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Probably not. Make a good impression. You know, you it, listen, play it close to your chest. If you're a Patreon subscriber and I've known you for a decade, then sure. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, David, I, I've been well vetted by mm-hmm. by Will. So David Lynch, he's very well loved. By hipsters. He's spooky. <laughs> he is. His movies are a little weird, I think I would say. They're kind of cult movies. And they don't always make sense. Yeah. He's one of the filmmakers, like Werner Herzog, that, like, when you're getting into I like movies, you have to watch his films. Yeah, but more than that, you have to share the memes. I remember that when I was first, like, discovering movies, I read about Lost Highway, and I went, oh, man, this movie sounds amazing. I probably read about it on arrowinthehead.com, mm-hmm. affiliate of joblo.com, and I remember scouring my small town, finding a VHS at Radio Shack, my heart beating in my chest as I popped it in and went, what the fuck is this? It definitely took me a little while to, like, get on board with Lynch. Probably by by the time I was in, like, first year of university, I, w- I was a fan. But, Alex, you were right on board, right? right from actually, the uh, no. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, so, actually, like you, Justin, I started with Lost Highway, and I caught it on Showcase, a great Canadian institution that is, unfortunately, no more. At least it's been bought out. But they were playing it when I on Showcase, and I knew about David Lynch from my, my dad, because my dad would sometimes just, you know, we would watch movies together, and we, we weren't watching that particular one, but... Um, um, but Lost Highway came on, and I'd heard about David Lynch, and I tried watching it. I watched the whole thing. And all I made, two hours and 11 minutes <laughs> All two hours, and I had no idea what was going on. So when I did eventually get into David Lynch, though, it was a bit later when I finally saw the um, uh, first series of uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah, that was the kind of real mainstream breakthrough of David Lynch, was a Twin Peaks TV series. It's incredible to think that there was, like, I don't know, a four-month period when he was super famous. He was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, he was kind of like you know, America's designated avant-garde filmmaker, you know. And he started from pretty humble beginnings. David Lynch's uh, pre-fame period, even before he made Eraserhead, was mostly spent as an artist. He wanted to do painting. He got involved with the AFI, which gave him funding to make movies like Grandmother, before finally he spent years and released the film Eraserhead, which I don't think I'm going to step on any toes by saying is amazing. Uh, not a fan. Really? No, I You're, love it. No, it's, it's great. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, you really... No, it's a great movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. And um, it's funny to see the way that Eraserhead was released, because it kind of defined the filmmaker right from the get-go, where it played a few cinemas, didn't do so well. 
until it became the titular midnight movie. Yeah, part of that, you know, I, I guess there are like a half dozen movies that we would think of as just being like the runaway midnight movie. Phenomena. Rocky Horror. Yeah, Pink Flamingos, Night of the Living Dead. El Topo. El Topo, yeah. I can't... I, Maybe the harder they come, I don't know if there are any others. Yeah, mostly most of the ones covered in Jay Hoberman's and Jonathan Rosenbaum's yes. book, yeah. Midnight Movies. And then there are a lot that didn't quite work out, like Glenn or Glenda or mm-hmm. some others, yeah. And after Eraserhead, Lynch had such an interesting career path that he made Elephant Man, which was nominated for a ton of Oscars, produced by Mel Brooks. Mm-hmm. And um, it really gave him the critical uh, reputation that you would never expect from the guy who made Eraserhead, the midnight movie. And then, of course, he did Dune. Yes. Um, like, before we get to Dune, maybe I'll just, like, say uh, what I respond to in his work. I-, I think there's something about David Lynch's work that I-, I think is, like, very, I don't know how to put this except to say that it's extremely male. Like, there's something uh, that's all about kind of, like, male um, sexual neuroses in here. So a movie like Eraserhead, where it's premised on this idea that, like, okay, you have sex with your girlfriend, and she's going to get pregnant, and it's going to ruin your life. Or uh, a movie like Lost Highway, which is all about this kind of, like, Madonna horror complex. Or Blue Velvet, even, where there's, like, this good girl and this bad girl. I don't know. There's something about that that like hits me right in the lapsed Catholic. Mm. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have a similar response. Um, no, actually, for me, uh, what I've always liked about his work are uh, sort of the very sincere characters that he creates. So, I mean, I think what I really responded to watching Twin Peaks is I really latched on to the... Uh, Kyle McLaughlin character, Special Agent Dale Cooper. I actually idolized him. I started drinking coffee. Uh, I think <laughs> Twin Peaks is the reason why I drink coffee to this day. Um, <laughs> it's a horrible addiction. Yeah, and actually, I'm apparently, apparently David Lynch uh, actually drinks something like 40 cups of coffee a day. He even has his own David according, Lynch cup. Yeah, according to, da- to David Foster Wallace, he uh, pees often and hard. <laughs> So for me, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not always been those elements uh, that that you highlighted, Will. It's been more like the, I guess what you'd call the surreal or dreamlike elements or the things Mm -hmm. or the ways that he mixes both the past and and people's dreams and fantasies and sort of using them together and how people sort of conceptualize themselves and how they move. And and really, he really think I think he captures that sort of that that long period of time that you're not always aware of where you are daydreaming and you are sort of accessing this part of yourself and this sort of poetic way that he kind of latches on like certain words and certain images. I think that's what I've always really enjoyed uh, and personally the, and about Lynch. I, I mean, I agree that I don't think there's like I can't think of any mainstream filmmaker who's better at evoking a dreamscape to the point where you know, like characters become other characters. Literally in Lost Highway. And I feel like that's something that happens when you're dreaming, right? Mm -hmm. You know, locations become other locations and people from your life appear in this kind of like monstrous form i mean i like the way david lynch makes me laugh (laughs) all those you know the jokes and the goofs and lynch movies in eraser head when jack nance goes ah you are sick (laughs) like i kept repeating that for weeks after that alex though i'm a little surprised that you pointed to kind of you latched onto the sincerity of some of the characters because that's i think a common knock against lynch but from his detractors that he's somehow like you know uh snarky or that he's some sort of an ironic remove from everything well no because i actually think i would actually uh say against that like i think he believes in the dale cooper character the jeffrey beaumont character like the characters that while kyle mclaughlin is mismatched i think for dune he works really well in blue velvet and in twin peaks and i think 
Dave Lynch does like those characters. I don't think it's just this ironic distancing. I think he does actually have a genuine interest because those are the characters that sort of go into the mystery, right? They kind of there are they they sort of go into that realm because on the one hand, while they have this kind of plucky innocence, um, which often gets, as you said, knocked. I mean it's really those characters that kind of go into like the darker recesses. And what you realize Mm. is that behind that kind of innocence and behind that sincerity is sort of a darker part, like with the Betty Elms character and Mulholland drive, Mm. or even, you know, the Pete character and lost highway, who's sort of trying to, I think somewhat capture that as well, but there's all these sort of, you know, between sincerity and darkness, there's sort of those two things are actually coexisting with each other. Mm. Well, David Lynch himself has that sincere way that he kind of presents himself. He's famous for going, Oh, boy. And yeah. golly. Ah, yeah, golly. <laughs> well, I, I just saw the documentary David Lynch, The Art Life, which I found mostly useless, uh, to be honest, and pretty boring. But, How much was there about transcendental meditation? Almost nothing. Oh, wow. Actually, wow. Jeez. But may, maybe maybe a little bit, but I, I can't remember. But one of the few, I think, useful insights into him that I found from it was when he said uh, that, you know, when he was in high school, he had different groups of friends um, and, you know, he had his family and he didn't like when these groups of friends mingled with each other. He didn't want his family to come to his graduation because you're a different person with different groups. And mm-hmm. he was worried about what would come out. <laughs> I'm cool guy Lynch. Put the sunglasses <laughs> on. He's like, fuck you. But, you know, I, I think in his in his body of work, Inland Empire shows this Blue Velvet shows it to some extent, like you have different selves, you know, you're, you're not all the same person it when kyle mclaughlin in blue velvet is spying on isabella rosalini getting beaten and raped and he's like enjoying it uh he thinks that's a different person than the guy who's like dating laura dern well that's what almost every lynch film is about right it's either like digging under the image that everybody sees and Uh seeing what's the the darkness underneath visualized literally by blue velvet where it goes from the Mm -hmm. suburban grass down Mm -hmm. to the bugs that are underneath but come on, I know you guys are trying to put it off, but let's talk about Dune. Yeah, sure, let's talk about Dune. Dune um, being the film that followed Elephant Man. It was uh, famously supposed to be directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, mm-hmm. another Midnight uh, Film alumni. Mm-hmm. And it ended up falling to the feet of David Lynch, produced by the mega producer Dino De Laurentiis. Mm-hmm. So, Lynch, on the surface, is a bold choice to direct Dune. But I feel that his kind of sensibilities, I can understand why Dino De Laurentiis would want him to do it. Even though De Laurentiis had only seen Elephant Man when he hired him for the gig. Mm. And when he saw Eraserhead, he did not like it. Yeah, he hated it. He actually said basically more of Elephant Man, like less of, of Eraserhead, basically. And De Laurentiis, as we start talking about it, one of the re- things that he was terrified of was that Dune was going to be silly. Mm. And he did not want it to be a silly movie. So they wow, pulled sorry. it all the way to the other end in the fact that almost nobody emotes. And yet it is still very silly. Well, it's a very silly movie. Yeah. When it has that much like visual opulence, I think it's unavoidable that it comes off as fairly goofy. I wish I could be the guy who comes here with the revisionist reappraisal of Dune, but man, I thought it was just a slog. And I, my strategy going into this viewing, it was the first time I'd seen it in 20 years, and my strategy going in was, let it just wash over me and enjoy this as a succession of images. But the problem is, the images are just like any kind of generic Star Wars knockoff. Oh, I don't think so. Like, there are some good ones. The pus-faced guy yeah. who's flying around is, is kind of... You didn't enjoy where Kyle McLaughlin fought that kung fu robot for like 10 
seven seconds. You know, some of the some of the special effects are good with the worms, but I look at these big sats that just look like big sats, and they look I love it. They look like they've just been painted. And, you know, like there's a certain kind of like retro charm to seeing mm-hmm. that, but there's nothing particularly Lynchian about it. It just looks like any generic Star Wars wannabe. Well, Lynch said that one of the things that attracted him to the project is that it deals with the themes that he's a big fan of. Like it said multiple times in the film, the sleeper must awaken. <laughs> like that was something that really mm-hmm. attracted it to him, where it's Kyle McLaughlin who's playing this prince of, I'm not even going to try to say any of the terminology from the film, mm-hmm. and that he suddenly awakens to a different world that he never understood like he leaves the dreamscape to go to this kind of quasi reality yeah i mean i think with with dune i mean i think the most lynchian elements in it are but definitely like getty prime as you like the which is the the place the sort of the the home planet of the harkonnens um and yeah and reading Look at this guy he's read dune the book yeah <laughs> yeah and um, yeah because i mean i mean this is the thing it's like so so actually my criticism of dune is actually a bit different in that when i saw it again i saw it actually in a double a double bill with uh, jadarevsky's dune the documentary and uh, after seeing Dune and being feel, still feeling disappointed about it, because I also wanted to have this kind of revisionist take on it, because I saw that it's sort of some people, you know, they really try to defend it. And uh, so I thought, you know, I'm going to go back and read the book. I'm going to read the original Dune novel. It's been a long time. And I could not get through the original mm-hmm. Dune novel. What I noticed was that what I feel is wrong with the script is that it actually tries to stick too closely. Mm-hmm. To the novel. Even though it's truncated, even though the second half, uh, when they finally go to the desert. What? Uh, two year time jump? Uh, okay. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or that he's like, I've drunk in the water of life. And it's like, okay. And now he's the Messiah. You yeah. Know, just all of a sudden happens. Um, but the thing is all that sort of, all those scenes that sort of get made fun of where you have those characters like being focused on with a camera and they're going, you know, is he the one? Oh, uh, you the mean the, Hatterick? that inspired Terrence Malick in his own filmography? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the sleeper must awaken, you know, all these sort of these, 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 these constant like monologues. that's in the book. That's throughout the entire book. These italicized sentences where you have all these interior dialogues. So what David Lynch was never a fan of that either. He says on Lynch on Lynch, he's like, at a certain point, you're cheating, yeah, right? At a certain yeah. Point, yeah, you smell a rat. That's what he says. Yeah. Um, I mean, watching this movie just made me appreciate the original Star Wars trilogy more, which I don't I don't even give a shit about Star Wars. But watching it, it's like, oh, yeah, Star Wars had fun characters. It had, it had people you like. It was impossible to just keep track. Like, what is the spice? Why do they want it? But in Star Wars, you basically know what the stakes are. Mm-hmm. You know, Darth Vader's bad and Luke and Leia want to fuck uh, and Han wants to fuck Leia, and like there's okay. a love triangle going on. Like <laughs> that's what Will like really focused on. Yeah, he's yeah. like, who's fucking who? <laughs> hey, Chewie, you trying to fuck Han as well? That's right. <laughs> And uh, fun fact, uh, David Lynch was offered yeah. Return of the Jedi fans. Before yeah. Dune. Before Dune. And he turned it down. And it's funny because, you know, and at the time, you know, he said to George Lucas, well, you know, George, uh, you should make it your own vision. <laughs> oh, my and, God. Uh, it's like David Lynch is in the room with us. And, <laughs> hey, Lynch, and, how's it and going? And then later he said, no, like, I knew I was going to be under the thumb of Lucasfilm and George Lucas. But it's weird because with <laughs> Dino De Laurentiis, right, like, he's got a $40 million budget. He's got these yeah. sort of huge responsibilities. So it's weird. Well, he probably thought that, that, well, I'm at least starting a new franchise with Right, Dune, right. Doing know? something new so you can put a stamp on. But, I mean, the other thing about Star Wars is you see all the aliens in, like, the canteen scene in Star Wars, and they all look kind of funny, and they're all these fun little Muppets, and, and you kind of imagine, oh, there's there's a whole there's a whole extra universe here. They all come from their own little tribe of Muppet 
space well, creatures. You didn't feel that in Dune? Because I did. Not really. I mean, it just... Uh, like, there's the yeah. navigators, and there's the um, the guild that's in charge of all that, and there's the master planet, yeah. and all that other stuff. I mean, it's also boring, though. I mean, Shock like, troopers that like, are, like, weird gas masks. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, Admiral Akbar is fun to look at. <laughs> and, and a lot all of All right, things... we know you love those dumb space adventures, Will. Uh, now, I, uh, you know, I, Dune is pretty indefensible as a good piece of entertainment. It is boring. I fell asleep watching it like I've done every times since I've gotten it on Blu-ray. Usually about 30 minutes in. It was a little five-minute nap, woke back up, but this time my attention was completely on it because I wasn't looking for any kind of dramatic payoffs or characters that I like. I just was going to take in the visual splendor. That's what I tried to do. Will tried to do. But, you know, some of our brains are more evolved than others. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. So, yeah, you know, so you were able to perceive Dune in a way. I was like, you had some of the spice. Yeah. My eyes turned turned blue. blue And I just (laughs) took it all in. Well, um... Uh, it failed to launch a franchise, but Dune did become David Lynch's highest grossing film to this day. Really? With, uh, 30, That's actually, 30, you know that. $30 million, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what did come out of Dune, and it's really important, is that David Lynch was able to make Blue Velvet. Yeah, good movie. Yep, good movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, most people like what you, it. What are you, you going to say? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't watch it for this, so I've seen it uh, half a dozen times. Well, something that David Foster Wallace gets at uh, in, in his essay, I'm just going to quote David Foster. Yeah, un- like, unofficial mascot of this episode. But, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. He wrote the definitive Lynch essay. What are you yeah, going to do? you did. Uh, he was talking about how like a lot of the reading of uh, the movie is that you know you've got the the happy scenes and you've got the sad scenes and there's you know there's the the facade of society um and then there's the seamy underbelly but actually it's a movie about how they're you know you've got the forces of good and evil and they're constantly intermingling so on my last viewing which is about two years ago what surprised me was um all of the horrific scenes have an element of humor and Mm -hmm. all of the like all of the kind of regular scenes have an element of being like horrifying. It's like, it, there's no clean dichotomy in the movie. It, it, yeah. I mean, I, I, Lynch is doing what scares him the most, right? His parents are meeting his friends and getting together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would actually agree with that uh, from Will is that, uh, yeah, when you think about David Lynch, it's really uh, once again, that kind of intermingling and what I said earlier about the sort of sincerity and darkness being mm-hmm. together. And uh, I think that's what makes, and, and that's the thing. I think that's what makes something like blue velvet more interesting than Dune. Cause Dune's trying to be this spectacle, but I think he works better with these kind of smaller stories mm-hmm. Which might be dealing with some very metaphysical themes, or, or they're very weighty, but they're actually like very localized, right? And you sort of see how these kind of bare forces kind of impinge upon like people's ordinary lives, and I think that really is what works uh, in something like Blue Velvet mm-hmm. as compared to Dune. So David Lynch made a bunch of movie, Wild at Heart, Lost Highway, Straight Story. We're not going to talk about those. I'm sure there's a million fucking. Uh, university essays like he must be like right up there as like the most written about like dream and logic in the films of david lynch yeah yeah uh, i actually i found a strange book uh that i was trying to read beforehand uh, where basically the author tries to sort of it's called david lynch swerves and tries to connect him to quantum mechanics and explain his movies but it's just weird because i mean to me like i think that's kind of diminishing to, to like watching david lynch is you're trying to come up with these physicalist like explanations like well this is just like this principle in quantum mechanics which i think is very would be very weird well i I was going to say, that's a good way to actually go into Inland Empire. Well, I I think I might just add that uh, his movies, because they're uh, confusing and because they have this like puzzle box uh, structure to them, especially Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, like they, uh, and Twin Peaks, of course, 
sometimes you watch them and you think, okay, well, if I get some skeleton key that will explain everything, it will all become clear. There was a joke know? one in the DVD of yeah. Mulholland Drive. Ten clues to unlocking this thriller. It's yeah. like, pay attention to the appearances of the red lampshade, stuff yeah. like that. Uh, Mulholland Drive, it's probably the most kind of easy one to navigate yeah. because it was a TV pilot that didn't get picked up. And there's a very clear film. rupture yeah. in the reality of it. And that kind of contextualizes all the other stuff that you've seen before. Mm-hmm. But not in Inland Empire. David uh, Lynch's last a theatrical movie. I use the term theatrical very loosely. Well, it did play in theaters. It did, uh-huh. yeah. But the way that it was created is really interesting in that he shot it over a period of years experimenting with, I guess, mini-DV technology. And it didn't even start as a movie. Like, it has a lot of stuff in there. It's basically like a, a state of the union of David Lynch's subconscious from mm-hmm. the years like 2000 to 2006. I actually, I would agree with that, yeah. because Especially because it's got that web series, Rabbits, that sort of makes an appearance within the film. And you're right, it's a clearinghouse for a lot of different ideas. Lynch is like, oh my god, I need to pad this out somehow to make it look like a feature film. Well, the way he describes it, and he describes it very beautifully in his interviews as being like you know he he started davidlynch.com where he would just put stuff and then then he talked about talks about oh and i started to realize that this was all forming into one great greater story um it was all part of the same universe and so there's this subplot in in poland and and you know part of it came about because Laura Dern moved in next door to him and said, oh, we should do a project together. And so he wrote this. <laughs> he this... knocks on her door. He's like, I have my camera right here, Laura. Let's start filming. But like he wrote this 15 page monologue for her to deliver as with like a Southern voice to a mysterious interrogator where she's talking about, you know, this very like sexually violent monologue. And so that came before the story about her as the movie star. And I think it's it's interesting after watching Inland Empire that if you don't know what it is, it's a three hour, like you said, kind of David Lynchian nightmare that people are obsessed with cracking it mm. in trying to give it a logical progression for it to make sense. I don't think it's possible to. I mean, when I say it's like a state of the union of David Lynch's unconscious, I, I think it's just that like these are all the things on his mind at the time. And I don't think there's any plausible explanation for how the rabbits fit into it, except that it was just something that Lynch was thinking about. It's like uh, free associative writing on film, you know? Yeah, and I think with a lot of it, I mean, if you've watched quite a few of his films, uh, you can sort of see certain symbols or ideas that have occurred in his previous films that come back into Inland Empire, like the very opening uh, with the lost girl, the Polish character in it, you know, she's watching TV, and I feel like TV is a big part, like in Blue Velvet, or in famously in Twin Peaks with uh, Invitation to Love, and you have all these, or, or even in Lost Highway, where people are on TV or watching TV or being watched by TV, so it's sort of mm-hmm. like, and, and also even at the beginning with this sort of uh, it's sort of weird obsession with crying women. Actually, this is on Lynch on Lynch because, uh, you know, the lost girl, we see her, one of the opening scenes is she's crying and actually Chris Rodley asks him about that and he's like, well, why do you have all these crying women? You know, there's a lot of crying women in Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive, you know. Uh, why? And he actually literally just says... me on! <laughs> he doesn't even really give an answer. He's like, you know, I never really thought about that. That's true. That does appear a lot. He's well, like, it's classic yeah. Lynch, right? Where yeah. it's like, why in Blue Velvet does Dean Stockwell sing that song to that lampshade? He's like, ah, it was just, you know, it was, yeah. it was just there and it looked cool the closest thing i would come to like you know uh a point from this movie is uh so laura dern's playing an actress and she basically becomes several different versions of the same person and it reminded me of i read an essay once by wallace sean of all people oh wow who who, classic animated voice who in addition and the guy at the dinner in in addition to being a a hilarious character actor from my favorite martian um, (laughs) 
<laughs> is also a uh, distinguished writer. Mm-hmm. I read an essay he wrote on acting where he said that what actors are, what actors understand. Did he quote my favorite? He much? said inconceivable. <laughs> <laughs> but he, but he said that like actors understand that when you're playing a role you're you're playing we're all playing a role in our daily lives and e- every role is a different version of a possible self. Mm-hmm. Um and so like that that's what that's what this is. I mean it's no accident in this movie that you know we see them filming scenes for the movie within a movie on high and blue tomorrows and then we're not sure there comes a point where we're not sure what's the movie within the movie and what's real life. Uh, because we all like choose to play a role. That's very deep, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to take a minute to think about that. Yeah. yeah and the other thing, uh, I mean, for me, like rewatching Inland Empire, I mean, for me, once again, I think maybe, you know, I do like to get into that detective uh, mode of, of, of watching a David Lynch film because you're trying to sort of piece together what's going on. And what, and what I noticed uh, watching it again that I didn't notice before is just how like certain ideas or like words are sort of appear constantly. So it's like, you know, axon N, you know, you hear that at the beginning and then it's sort of, there's several different places that are called axon N or the number 47. So he likes to sort of put these kind of weird contextual <laughs> clues everywhere that kind of just pop up because I think probably he gets obsessed with a certain word or phrase. Like, in like Lost Highway, mm-hmm. you know, the phrase Dick Laurent is dead, which apparently is something that somebody actually said to him, or he gets obsessed with certain words or phrases mm-hmm. that you sort of see in a film, like it gets repeated again, or like in Blue Velvet, uh, now it's dark, right? Or these things that he sort of constantly, I think it's because it evokes a kind of imagery or kind of mm-hmm. idea that he really likes. He likes the sound of it and you sort of see it appear. And for me, it was nice to just sort of, at first I was like, okay, I'm really going to try to understand this film, but uh, watching it again, it was like I was able to go in and just sort of enjoy just sort of like the different like different levels or the different things that he was actually exploring. Well, in his interviews, he's a bit of a troll. In Catching the Big Fish, his book, there's a point where he says, <laughs> one time I picked up uh, the King James Bible and uh, saw a verse that I felt perfectly explained Eraserhead. I don't think I'll ever tell anyone what it is. Like, that's him being being a troll. But yeah, yeah. He's even but, said, like, uh, no one has been able to explain uh, what Eraserhead came from, what really inspired yeah. me. They're like, it's fatherhood like we know that as, as if there is like an actual yes. explanation uh, but he, i will give you a no prize if you figure it out but clearly he is somebody i mean i don't he's not entirely trolling when he presents this image of himself because he's clearly a very instinctive artist he talks about how he gets all these ideas from meditating and from tapping into some like deeper subconscious and and yeah clearly that's how he is i think that inland empire is probably the purest form of that and it's always fascinating to me that that was his last kind of big project in a long time because mm-hmm. it's so fractured, it's so difficult, while Twin Peaks is coming back. And are we going to get the David Lynch who made Inland Empire or are we going to get the one who made Twin Peaks in the well, 90s? Well, some of the executives who watched it, apparently the quote was, this is like the pure heroine David Lynch. So, so that's Inland that Empire? Could, that could like, Inland, well, the thing is, though... That sounds like they're trying to spin it and make it... But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess for, what that means is they don't like it and they don't think anyone else will like it, so they're trying to be, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know what? You got get what you paid. We, we're getting what we paid for. Yeah. Uh, but no, because I was thinking about also, because even within Twin Peaks, right? Because, I mean... A lot of people, the the second season is very difficult for a lot of people, and I mean, yeah, because it's and, not good. And and I I actually would argue, okay, so first, <laughs> okay, uh, this, this is my like revisionist take yeah. on it. So so the but second Lynch season wasn't really involved that much in the second season. More of a Mark Frost joint, wasn't it? Uh, no. Like what happened was that he was involved at the very beginning, and he got less involved once they forced him to reveal who killed mm-hmm. Laura Palmer, basically. And so the all the episodes were after like like the immediate episodes after you find out who killed Laura Palmer that they, they're just like huge dip in quality. Yeah. Like, 
was a real bad. Awful. But actually, he came back to it about six episodes, and what you notice is that things start actually being put together again. And I mean, there's the final episode, yeah, which is, which fa- is famous. So. Yeah, and it's and I think it's fantastic, and I think it'll be interesting because I mean that to me is like when I think pure heroin, David Lynch. I think not just Inland Empire, but the final episode of Twin Peaks, which really kind of creates like all these sort of weird mysteries and really kind of like emphasizes like the metaphysical element. So it'll be interesting to see. <laughs> yeah, a like, man how... is trapped under a thing of bees that's gonna fall on his face. Yeah, yeah and it's like what's gonna happen? Like what's gonna happen? You know, <laughs> how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you how do you follow up with that twenty five years later? You know, what I mean, a yeah. horrible nightmare. All right, let's well, get back to life. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad to have Lynch back because I've seen his paintings and I've heard his music and it's <laughs> <laughs> kind of not good. Well, you know. It, well, remember people falling over themselves saying how amazing his music was when it first popped out? Well, the, about his paintings, I'll say that, like, you know, it, they're obviously an expression of him, and it's it's nice that he expresses himself. I think Francis Bacon did it better. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, cause, cause I, he, yeah. I think we have yeah. enough mediocre painters, you know? Oh. Because David Foster Wallace famously <laughs> says that he looks at uh, that one painting, oh, God, Mom, the dog bited me. I think that's what it's called. And, so, and he says that, you know, it looks like something Francis Bacon would have done in junior high. Right. <laughs> He's right. He's right. I, I forgot and, that. And there are all the fart right. photographs of like industrial landscapes and, and spark plugs and things like that and all yeah. the weird like technology. No, nobody makes movies like David Lynch, but there was a guy who made paintings much better. <laughs> than, much better than, yeah. than David Lynch. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I think that's everything we have about David Lynch. So now we have to start selling stuff. If you like this podcast, we have a Patreon account where for only $5 a month, you can listen to a new episode every week. That's about 15, 20 minutes long. This week, we talked about Quentin Tarantino's and Robert Rodriguez's Grindhouse. 10th anniversary. <laughs> I love the enthusiasm that you had. Yeah, it just made me think about how old I'm getting. <laughs> And if you want Will to have those reflections again, listen to the episode (laughs) as he looks into the abyss. And I'd also like to thank some of the people that donated to the Patreon recently. We have James, Jay, Kevin, Tim. Thank you for donating to the Patreon. And for people who are still on the edge... Alex, you donate to the Patreon. What have you gotten out of it? Uh, I feel like uh, I've become stronger. My thoughts have become <laughs> clearer. Uh, my ability to think and watch, uh, th- think about and watch movies has become much better. So you especially can get all these Power Rangers, <laughs> especially right? Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Uh, so if you, if you want more of uh, Will and Justin and they're just their excellent uh, analysis of films, I highly recommend donating five dollars a month. And you might even be able to come on the podcast like me. <laughs> it may take a decade, and you will be vetted. But yes, you may be able to come on the podcast. So, letters. We have a letter from Bevan Clark, and he goes, Hey guys, I'm an avid listener of your show. I got hooked after searching for Catherine Brea on iTunes and accidentally stumbling across your podcast. I just wanted to add an anecdote about loud talking. I just wanted to add an anecdote about loud talking old people in cinemas from a previous episode. I caught Amour a few years ago at the State Cinema in Hobart, Australia's second oldest cinema. And the median age of the audience I saw it with was round about 75. <laughs> wow, perfect for Amour. Did they enjoy the ending where the woman dies because she's too old? <laughs> After the final scene where the frail husband euthanizes his dementia-ridden wife, an old man got up from his chair and said, Well, that was the most fun I've had all day. (laughs) Then he walked out. That's fun. I I like that. I should finish this email by throwing out a question to both of you. I notice Australian cinema rarely rates a mention on your show. What do you, each of you regard as the greatest Australian film ever made? Regards your fateful listener, Bevan. Well, The Road Warrior. I yeah, mean, I think that's probably Ma- the greatest. Mad Max. Uh, you know, uh, My Brilliant Career is pretty good. Young Einstein. 
Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> How long would it, it take? It was only a matter of time. I'm so actually, I'm really, I'm really curious as an Australian listener. Like, like, is saying Crocodile Dundee almost like an ethnic slur? Uh, is it like saying? Well, I mean, we're proud when someone says like Strange Brew or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? Canada. Yeah, but if they say like Rick Mercer, nobody says Rick Mercer who's not from Canada. <laughs> It was actually a, a made-for-TV movie in Australia about the life of Paul Hogan. I, I think you saw that that trailer. I mean, you right? showed it to me. Yes, yeah. you did. It's called Hogs. Yeah, Hogs. To, to our to our listener, if you've seen Hogs, the the made-for-TV movie, please write back and tell us all about it. I'm really curious. I mean, I, I came here to like praise Australian cinema, and now I'm I'm making fun of Paul Hogan. But like Peter Australian Weir. cinema for me and Will, we probably know the most about it because we saw that documentary, Not Quite Hollywood. Oh yeah, exploitation. That's mm-hmm. a very rich terrain. Uh, I just recently rewatched The Man from Hong Kong. But, oh, that Brian Trenchard Smith's magnum opus. Uh, just a fucking terrific movie. I loved it. <laughs> so good. And yeah. then you also have films that take place in Australia, but were not made by Australians. They were actually made by a Canadian, like Wake and Fright, directed by Ted Kochiff, which is a great movie. Which, when you Google uh, Australian films, shows up. <laughs> yes, so that is true. I'm, I apologize to the Australian film industry for that. <laughs> and I mean, something like Walkabout also shows up, but I don't think Nick Rogue was Australian either. So w- Was he not? No, I believe he was English. Other than the ones that you mentioned, I've got to say... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not as well-versed in uh, Australian cinema. I would say The Road Warrior, but yeah, if I think about it, I mean... Does Kangaroo uh, Jack count as an Australian film? <laughs> that, just... th- that's racist. Come on. <laughs> you know, it was interesting, though, like... Uh, yeah, I know, the kangaroo I, doesn't I like, actually I talk like, in the movie. I like right? Australian TV. Sequence. That's the closest I get. I like Australian oh, yeah. TV. Yeah, I really liked uh, Miss Fisher's uh, Murder Mysteries, mm-hmm. uh, which is on the Australian. And uh, I guess, uh, is The Babadook uh, an Australian oh, film? Oh, great movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Wolf yeah. Creek well, is as, as yeah, uh, Australian yeah. film as well. Davis is in that, and she's also she plays uh, Franny Fisher. So I mean, that's that's the closest. Actually, they do pretty good uh, mystery shows actually in uh, in Australia. So that's the closest I've come. To. Crocodile Dundee was kind of interesting. <laughs> I in can't how let it go. Uh, yeah, no, I have to talk about it. It was kind of interesting though. That it, it kind of like launched this uh, wave of like uh, Australian Orientalism in in America that lasted for like four or five years. Like, Did it? Well, it made Young Einstein possible. It made like there's uh, a yeah, who's serious? I know those words, but not together like that. But like there's a. Uh, there's a Cheech Marin vehicle called Shrimp on the Barbie directed <laughs> oh, directed awful. directed by the oh, great Alan Smithy. Um, oh, okay, who was it really? Do you know? I, I don't know. <laughs> Lots some, of the some hack. Time, who yeah. cares? But like that's an example of a movie that was just made possible by Crocodile Dundee. And I remember watching like Paul Hogan hosted the Oscars one year, and you can see the clip online. <laughs> Yeah, I swear yeah, to God. He hosted the Oscars. Wait, wait, wait. He hosted the Oscars? In the 80s, yeah. <laughs> that's awful. That's awful. And if you look at his monologue... Uh, you mean awesome, right? It, well, if you look at his monologue, it's all this shit like, well, things sure are all different in here than in the Australian outback. Why in here? It's like, it's like, dude, like... Australia is not like some some backwards. Well, you remember how angry Australia was when that episode of The Simpsons came out, yeah. right? Where it's like I'm gonna speak to my member of parliament, and he's like, "Oi!" And he's like sitting in a uh, uh, a pool. Like the, the Crocodile Dundee movies make it look like there, you know, there's no electricity there. It's like yeah. like the, the first one opens with him like having trouble like on the escalator at the airport. It's not. It's like an advanced civilization. Yep, that's right. Right. And yeah. then and they gave, he gave they gave us Alex Proyas, director of Dark City. 
Okay. And well, Gods sure. of Egypt. Yeah. The Dark City. Yeah, Dark City's not bad. Yeah, Gods um, of Egypt is amazing. All right, so. And then, I guess... BMX the Bandits, baby. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the, the only Brian other Trenches piece of uh, Australian media that I can think of is... Uh, and I think uh, this will only be remembered by... <laughs> We're, like, fucking digging deep, are we? <laughs> <laughs> this will be I feel so sorry for our Australian <laughs> listener. Uh, well, that was, this person might, might know... Um, uh, so, this is, if you watch TVO in the 90s, you definitely watch the show Around the Twist. It's about the kids in the lighthouse, and they basically no. You never got you guys never no, watched that. I have no idea. That was idea. like you never watched TV Ontario, you know, because like it would air before Channel Wishbone. Two. That's way too up. Yeah, that's yeah, past they, global. That's yeah, they, too... they, they would they would they would air like just before Wishbone round the twist. And it's basically yeah. these kids who live in a lighthouse and they solve mysteries. So that's and it's very funny and bizarre. So that's, my yeah. memory was probably erased by the fact that it was followed by a show where a dog played <laughs> all the literature. You, yeah, you remember the Romeo and Juliet episode where it's like this woman romancing a dog. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think the most terrifying the one is they do Faust. So yeah. they have the Beagle playing Faust and like literally like making deals with the devil that like murder people. Do you remember the the Frankenstein episode where they changed they changed the ending so that the monster like comes to Doctor Frankenstein on his deathbed to thank him for giving him life and oh and, and he's and the monster is like literally thanking a dog <laughs> like dressed in old English garb. In well, I bed. mean Romeo and Juliet they did not commit suicide at the end. No, the, no, the, that's right. Yeah, I mean it was probably like um, Romeo and Julie Bone or something. Yeah, that, right. They, were they always puns. had some clever like pun, and I, it made every kid want to read. <laughs> did it? No, not at all. <laughs> all right. So if you have any other questions to ask us or comments, feel free to email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And next week, because there is the Canadian Film Day coming up on April 19th, mm-hmm. we're going deep. And we're going to be doing a whole episode on the NFB. What is the NFB? If you don't live in Canada, that is the National Film Board of Canada. Once a year, Justin likes to, you know, rant a little bit about the Canadian film industry, get it off his chest, and, you know, I I humor him. If you don't know, the National Film Board actually created some amazing documentaries and gave us some of the most innovative animation that has ever been created as well, and we'll be talking about both of those things. So probably Nobody Waved Goodbye, one of the greatest Canadian films of all time, some Norman McLaren. Yep, uh, probably a documentary or two that we're going to talk about as well. All right, well, thank you very much for joining us this week, Alex. Uh, Thank you for having me. It was great. Uh, My name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. I'm Alex Ross. Thanks for listening. I just watched Serial Mom this week, a fantastic John Waters film. Yeah, I love it. And uh, it made me think that John Waters hasn't made a movie in a long time. And he's been asked that question a lot, which is like, why haven't you done anything? And he said straight up like, I am in movie jail. Like, people will not give me money to make movies. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, the saddest thing that can happen, especially to someone as established as John Waters. Well, he's also said that, like, he can get money for movies, but, like, he has to do it on $500,000. Which is insane. He can't do that. Because it's not just him, though. Like, the whole market for independent films, you can't make a $5 million independent film anymore. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about that a little bit before, that there's no mid-range anymore. But is there anybody that comes to mind that was, like, put in movie jail? And you're like, why did that happen? Well, I mean, uh, you know, famous example is Elaine May, um, which I mean, she's a woman, so yeah. But but I mean, like she's in movie jail also for the same reason that like Michael Cimino ended up in in movie jail. Um, I mean, it was probably doubly in her case because she's a woman. There was an article I think I saw recently. I didn't read it, but um, Martin Brast, um, who made Geely. 
But mm-hmm. before that, he did Beverly Hills Cop, and he did, uh, you know, a movie that I like a lot, Midnight Run. Yeah, it's a real bummer. It's like, why, what did they earn for this to happen? Do they need to just sell out to be able to go back? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Josh Trank, of course, is the most famous example in recent years of somebody in movie jail. Not that I really give a shit about Josh Trank. And he's the one who kind of wrote his own ticket, right? Because he had a famous tweet where he was like, if you guys saw my director's cut. He tweeted that like the day before it came out and then deleted it five minutes later. But of course, the damage was done. And it's appeared literally everywhere in like all articles of like this director is in movie jail because of this reason. If you look at his Twitter, there's literally nothing. There's only like two tweets. But I'm, I'm kind of. I, you know, I can live without Josh Trank. I mean, <laughs> like tossing and turning at night. Yeah. Like, is there any other filmmakers that are still alive? And you're like, why aren't they active right now? Uh, the only one I can think of is Terry Zweigoff. Uh, mm. After he made uh, Art School Confidential, because he's, you know, remember after Ghost World, right? Mm. There's a lot of buzz and even, you know, Crumb. And yeah, I mean, I think he's made something again recently. But yeah, he, I think he's pretty much in movie Like jail. He, he couldn't even get to direct um, Bad Santa 2. It was Mark Waters, the man behind Freaky Friday, who did that. Yeah, there's some indication that he's difficult to deal with. I mean, uh, Terry Zweigoff is. Mm. But, you know, who, who gives a shit? Uh, I mean, if their movies filmmaker. made money, no one would care, right? But, you know, yeah. these movies don't make that much money. You know, I mean, the one that always frustrates me a bit um, is, is Terry gilliam even though inevitably when a movie of his comes out i'm usually disappointed by it these days but but i still wish that we had twice as many terry gilliam movies because, yeah me too because even even the lesser ones always have great moments in them yeah and i mean it's obviously the gods don't want him to make movies yeah. so. but i mean he's in a, a tricky case because he is like an actual visionary he's mm-hmm. he's somebody who is just an, a kind of uncompromising artist and he's somebody who needs these big budgets to get his ideas across i i like the um international directors who get like a big hit and then come to america to make a motion picture and then like they make obviously a bad movie and then they get thrown straight into movie jail whether it be jean-pierre genet with uh, alien resurrection or the movie that i watched this week Kirk Wong's the big hit. Or, well, John Woo uh, had a couple of big hits, Face Off, Mission Impossible 2, and then, you know, all of a sudden there was Wind Talkers and Paycheck, and he was in movie jail and had to had to go with his tail between his legs back to the mainland to make propaganda films. Hey, Paycheck is such a weird film because it's a reaction to Wind Talkers, right? Because Wind Talkers is like pure John Woo. <laughs> like, this is a movie that he wanted to make, and then it's him apologizing with this lame Philip K. Dick adaptation yeah. that stars Ben Affleck. So, but back to the big hit. Yeah. important stuff um this is a film that if you guys don't remember starred marky mark not john leguizamo but lou diamond phillips okay but for some reason i always thought it was john leguizamo the past yeah the past himself and it would play endlessly on the superstation tbs <laughs> to fans yeah <laughs> and do you remember seeing this or i i might have seen it because i of course i watched the superstation a lot uh, but no i didn't i did i saw rush hour a lot on the superstation <laughs> that's right yeah hey, is brett rat in movie jail these days because of Hercules? He's a mogul. Like, oh, he's okay. always producing stuff. You know? Yeah, and Hercules was probably the final word that he had to say about yeah. artistically. He has had a few flops, though. Tower Heist also was a bit of a flop. I thought it was a huge hit. Made 70 million. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then he also has films like um, After the Sunset or Sunrise or yeah, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is Pierce Brosnan and his cronies hanging around. Okay. I know that we've talked this much, but this is like the secret spot for all like the import cinema club super fans. Because let's talk about how excited we are for Jackie Chan the Foreigner. Oh God! (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Pierce Brosnan and Jackie Chan, two great flavors that taste great together. If if I could have played this movie at like my birthday party in 1999, I'm sure it would have been a big hit. Do you think that there's any chance of it being entertaining? Well, Martin Campbell directed it, who has made good movies. Oh, but man, he is such hit and miss. Like Casino Royale, 
great. He's just Green Lantern, not bad. So <laughs> well, you know, with the James Bond movies, those movies are probably like only as good as the producers are willing to let them be. Yeah, I, I mean, there's he's he's, he's certainly not an auteur. No, um, I don't think so. But I hope that he brings that kind of tactile physical action that he made him popular with films like Goldeneye. Yeah. And Jackie Chan will look decrepit and broken and not wanting to be there. I think uh, watching The November Man recently uh, on Netflix during a lonely night, um, <laughs> it occurred to me that Pierce Brosnan is not a good actor. You know what? If you don't like Pierce Brosnan, maybe you shouldn't be watching it! <laughs> 